This is Maine Currents Independent Local News, Views, and Culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. It's the third Tuesday of the month, so it's once again time for our Elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents with our regular guests, Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, and former State Representative Ralph Chapman, and our semi-regular guests, Ann Luther, Board Member for the League of Women Voters of Maine and host of the Democracy Forum here on WERU, and Will Hayward, Advocacy Program Coordinator for the League of Women Voters. We're going to be talking about efforts to keep the polling places free of voter intimidation and suppression and answering, have them answer some questions about the voting process. This program was recorded via Zoom on Monday, October 19th. I'm going to start with uh, what's transpired since the last time we did this in the past few weeks, there have been a vice presidential debate. There have been uh, town hall meetings, both Trump and Biden separately. And uh, League of Women Voters people will sit out this round. But Amy Freed, uh, Ralph Chapman, either one of you have any impressions you'd like to share after watching those debates? Or did you even watch them all, the debates and the town hall? Well, I watched the President, the one presidential debate, the vice presidential debate, and then I went to the Biden town hall. Um, and uh, I mean, the first debate, you know, the, the, the one presidential debate that was held was obviously uh, full of a lot of interruptions by President Trump primarily. Um, and I, it, did seem to result in some harm to his candidacy. He dropped a few points after the debate. Now, initially, I thought that might just be a debate bounce, which isn't necessarily very meaningful because all bounces go up and they go down. And sometimes these debate bounces are really artifacts of who happens to decide to answer the phone for a period of time. Um, there's what we call in polling a response bias, but it seems to have persisted. So it, it, it seems that that had a negative impact. And then, um, although numerically with the vice presidential debate, both candidates actually talked about the same amount of time when someone went through and timed it alternately talked about, I think the impression was that uh, Pence was talking more and because he's, he kept talking as um, the moderator was trying to get him to, to be quiet and would interrupt as well. So you had that to, you know, just basic lack of politeness, I think, in, in those debates, which was a, a bit of a turnoff. And then I just, I think that really right now, most people are concerned with a small set of issues. And the top one is, is the virus. And um, it's, difficult for the president and the vice president to really defend how their administration is doing. And most people think that they're doing a poor job. So, you know, that was clearly a, a piece of it. I think, and you know, that the there was a big investment from the Trump campaign in trying to get the message out that Biden had uh, some kind of cognitive problems, wouldn't be able to debate well, but he that's, it's never a good idea to talk down your debate opponent. You should be talking them up. They lowered expectations for him. And then he didn't at all come off that way. 
you know, so I, I think that was a that was a problem for them. But I mean, we've had really mostly a very stable race on the presidential side for quite a while. Ralph I don't, Chapman. I don't know that there was any change of opinion by viewers. I uh, similar to Amy Freed, I did watch the first debate, which was uh, very, very painful because ill behavior is is not something that's uh, fun to look at. Uh, and then the uh, uh, vice presidential debate was, uh, uh, I, I thought the, uh, I, I thought that had some substance to it and at least was a little more civil. Although, as Amy pointed out, uh, uh, vice president uh, had to be interrupted because he refused to stop talking when his time was up. Um, the, the town hall, um, I thought this was an, a good opportunity for people to see those that watched uh, former Vice President Biden, I thought got an opportunity to see uh, elements of his character, elements of his humility, elements of his uh, ease with uh, a variety of types of people. By the same token, I think the viewers of uh, uh, the other town hall with uh, President Trump got to see what they normally don't see, which is a, a, a form of, of uh, the way he interacts when he's not talking to a friendly audience. He likes to talk to friendly audiences. He likes to talk with friendly news people. Well, at least his friends at, uh, at the Fox News Network. And then um, when he's in a different environment where he has to talk to a wider range of people, he does not do well. And I, I think that was important for people to see that. I only saw small clips of that town hall. I um, found other things to do <laughs> rather than to watch the entirety of it uh, on replay. So th those are my quick impressions. I'm not sure that it would have changed people's minds, but I think it did give people an opportunity to see something that um, many may not have seen before. As we're, we're taping this on Monday, but as it's airing, it's Tuesday, and we're looking at another debate. Uh, last I checked, I believe it was yesterday, or sometime over the weekend, no new rules had been issued, or it, it wasn't public how they were going to handle things this time around to make sure that they didn't have the level of interruption and disruption that they had in the first presidential debate. Does anybody have the inside scoop on that? Has anyone heard anything more about what they might be doing? I mean, the simple thing really is just turn off the microphones when it's not their turn to talk. I don't know why that hasn't just always been done, but. Well, that was in fact the issue, one of the issues that President Trump brought up of why he did not want to do a remote. Uh, uh, right debate was that he knew that he would be able to be cut off and he said he didn't want to be able to be cut off. So I would not expect that he would agree to a debate format in which he could be cut off. I mean, that seems like a logical thing for us to think that when, when there's a, a disruption in the process, as we saw, that's a simple technological solution, but I don't think he would agree to it. Well, there seems to be less patience for dealing with his demands, though, I mean, that's how we ended up with the separate town halls was he he withdrew from the remote debates and rather than uh, 
it seemed almost like they were calling his bluff because as soon as they said, all right, fine, we won't do them, and Biden scheduled something else, then Trump started tweeting that, you know, he wanted to do it. And it's so it's, is it possible, do you think, that there won't be a debate? I think that's possible because one of the rules that Biden has insisted on is that there be a negative COVID test prior to the debate. I, I, I believe the moderator of the first debate said that uh, Trump arrived too late to take the test, and, which was an agreed upon rule for the first debate. Now, I don't know that that did or did not happen. And, uh, but I, 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 I would question whether that's going to be a sticking point this time. Okay, great. And, and I just had a note that the debate is on Thursday this week, not on Tuesday. So correction to that. Um, so everybody can weigh in on this if you're interested. Uh, we've talked about this, I think, every single program that we've done since March. But let's go over again what possible outcomes are if, Trump refuses to leave office if he won't accept the outcome of the election or if he's throwing various legal challenges at it. Can we go over what that process is? Well, one thing I'll just mention Professor is that Amy last Reed. night on 60 Minutes, John Bolton, who you know was a part of the Trump administration for a time, said that he, he thought that Trump wouldn't go graciously and that it would probably be up to Republican leaders to step in and say that they're not going to stand behind him trying to to block things. Should he should he you know, should he lose? They're not going to let him try to stay in like that. Now, I don't know if that will happen, but he said he had 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 some pretty high level conversations. So if he's, you know, if we can take him at his word and, uh, you know, we don't know who exactly he spoke with, then perhaps there will be some effort by Republican leadership to say, you know, this is this is enough. On the other hand, there are a lot of things that really can happen within states that will slow things down. Um, there are uh, all kinds of rules, even on, you know, depending on how close it is on, on recounts, some of them automatic, some of them not. And so things could just go on because of that. And then um, all the time, making claims about the election being stolen. I, I think, uh, you know, another thing that I think will, we all really expect to happen is that Trump will try to claim that he won based on election day returns. One, Because uh, some states do count, you know, release their uh, absentees the same time uh, or virtually the same time. Sometimes the late, there's later ones coming in they haven't counted yet. But, they, you know, there are a number of states that will do that. But the ones that don't, uh, people expect that the people who vote on election day are going to be more pro-Trump than the ones who are voting ahead of time or through absentee ballots. I mean, that's what it, it appears to be. So Trump would try to make those claims. But I, but the, I think the press, TV networks are being very are going to be very careful in the kind of claims they make. They're not going to call states until they're really sure of uh, what they think is going on. And most of the public at this point, based on the polling that's out there, doesn't expect the race to be called immediately. So I think that kind of message has, has gone out in terms of, uh, you know, kind of wait and see. And, um, you know, so 
I mean, that's one aspect of this. That's not maybe like what exactly is Trump going to do, but I think this whole background in terms of where the public is and potentially Republican leadership is really, you know, important to the ability to make these kinds of claims and, and be able to get any kind of, you know, real following that, that, that Trump could have. Well, and it won't matter what the rest of the media does, though, if Fox doesn't go along. Right. But, you know, I, I wonder how Fox, how the Fox decision desk, desk will act. And maybe I'm being too optimistic, but there's a really kind of famous slash infamous scene that you can go. I go and I watch it every so often because I find it so amusing, which is when Karl Rove was on Fox News and on, for election night 2012. He uh, and Fox News was ready to call Ohio for Obama, um, or maybe it was, yeah, it was 2012. And he said, no, 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 I don't think you should call Ohio yet. You shouldn't call Ohio yet. And the reporter um, on Fox said, well, I'm going to go back to the decision desk area and talk to these people on the camera, followed her walking all the way back to this area with all of these guys. They were all guys. <laughs> sitting in front of uh, computer screens, and they and they said, you know, she said, I just want to check Karl Rove saying, Ohio, these other votes are going to come in, and they went through this whole explanation about why they thought, no, no, this is settled, how many votes are in this place, how many in the other place, and they stuck to it. So, I mean, there are professionals who, who are part of the operation, even if you may have certain, uh, you know, reporters or individuals on a particular on a, if so that, but that was election night i guess the question is if there's no call up the next day who is it that dominates on those other on those uh you know those kinds of networks like fox maybe at that time they're like rallying to the president but i don't think that the the professionals doing the calls are, are going to go along with this. Some at, more commentary-oriented programs. Yeah, anyone else want to weigh in on that? Mm -hmm. Just to add on the, on the, um, you know, expectation setting and how this is all kind of being, you know, set up to play out over election day and the couple of days that follow, one thing that has actually very pleasantly surprised me this uh, cycle, I think, has been the expectation setting from the media around how long some of this stuff will will or may take to call um you know all of them all of the major networks including fox news do have these decision desks with political scientists you know they're they wouldn't be rushing to make a call anyways but especially this year where you know the ways the numbers come in and they're reported in different states are going to be so different than normal so unpredictable you know some states all of the absentee numbers are going to come in before any of the election day numbers some some states it's going to be flipped um, all of this I think I think the networks and um, in you know their messaging to the, to the public in you know trusted trusted sources their messaging to the public has been you know this is an unprecedented election and um, you know all of the votes will be counted we will take the appropriate time necessary to count this some states have adjusted their policies including Maine to start processing their votes to the absentee votes to be ready to be counted earlier than they have in the past. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's important to 
both understand that it may take longer than normal and also that there is, you know, there is a fair amount that we will we will know on election night and I trust trust the networks actually to um, you know to disseminate that information with the appropriate context. Anyone else? All right, you're listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. This is the Elections 2020 edition. And my guests today are Professor Amy Free, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, former State Representative Ralph Chapman, and Luther, board member for the League of Women Voters of Maine, and also host of the, the Democracy Forum here on WERU. And you just heard from Will Hayward, Advocacy Program Coordinator for the League of Women Voters. Looking just a little bit at campaign ads and anything else that you want to want to uh, throw in here, why is so much money being thrown at the Gideon Collins race? It's just an astonishing amount of money. Is is this uh, unprecedented in Maine electoral politics? So yeah, head's nodding, but it is. <laughs> I mean, it's a closely contested race. It's a high stakes race. The balance in the Senate could be at stake. Um, this is Ann Luther. Yeah, it's um, it's a it's a lot of money. I've read I've read some interesting coverage of you know the question now. I think to some degree is how do you even spend all of this money in a state the size of Maine compared to the amount of money that's come in? It's you know there aren't ads left to buy at a certain point. Does anyone have the latest numbers? Mm -hmm. I believe the last last quarter, um, Sarah Gideon raised thirty nine million. Um, Susan Collins raised eight million, and that goes without talking about the millions and millions and millions of dollars in independent expenditures from super PACs and um, you know other other groups that are you know dipping their their toes in this race as well. I sometimes look at the dollars per vote. Uh, that are spent in campaign ads. You might recall that for our statewide elections with a clean election system, um, candidates are restricted to spending money if they agree to be in, uh, part of the clean election system uh, to somewhere in the vicinity for, say, a state representative race of $5,000 uh, in a district that has uh, about 8,500 uh, residents. And so one is, in, in, in those races, the, uh, it's something like 75 cents per, per possible voter is about the limit of the campaign expenditures. Uh, and here we're in a, in, a, in a spot where what we might have uh, $100 per vote uh, uh, being spent already or, or more. Uh, it, it's, it, quite frankly, it's obscene. It's simply obscene. It, it's very obscene. It's, it's, a, it's a clear diminution of uh, democratic principles. I mean, it, it, principles of democracy uh, are, are clearly at stake. And this is a consequence and part of the Citizens United decision of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, which uh, uh, clearly is, was a bad decision, in my opinion. It was a bad decision. And, and the great... Uh, the great backer of the lawsuit, you know, the major backer of the lawsuit was Mitch McConnell, who now is having to deal with the flood of money that's come in on the other side of his party, you know? So like, you know, it, there's a certain irony, I think, to it. And um, it, 
it is uh, certainly a very, very competitive race. I mean, I, th I think when we go and look back on this race, depending on how it turns out, I think what we'll see is that I don't even know how much the money ends up, ends up mattering. Because if you look at what, what's happened to this um, four-term incumbent that we have, Senator Susan Collins, she had extremely high approval ratings for years. She won her last race overwhelmingly with a landslide, and then her numbers went down through the Trump years. They started to dip really with the tax bill that she voted for, and then they really went under 50% with Kavanaugh. And, I, and she complains a lot about the outside money and dark money, but I think a lot of this was written in, in just before the election really started and that Sarah Gideon is basically a generic Democrat against her. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, it is absurd and some of the messaging is not good. I don't like any messaging that involves anybody's spouse. You know, and they're both doing that. And I don't like it from either side. Um, and, um, you know, I think there are enough really clear issue differences between them that as an old fashioned policy wonk or whatever, I would rather that's what they're talking about. One of the ads against Sarah Palin blames her for the legislature not being in Sarah session Gideon. right now. Or against Sarah Gideon, I'm sorry blames her for the legislature not being in session right now. Can uh, Ralph, yeah. can you say a little bit about what's going on as a former legislator yourself? Just yeah. remind people of why the legislature is not in session. Uh, right. what, what's going on with them getting back in session? Bottom line relative to that advertisement claim is, is, is basically false. There are two ways that the legislature can be called back into session. And one way is that the governor calls the legislature into session. And the other way is that the legislative leaders call the legislature back into session. In order for the legislative leaders to call the legislature back into session, it requires polling every member of the legislature and determining that every party uh, has a majority of every party in the legislature is uh, consents to being called into session. So at the present time, um, the Republicans in the legislature are not uh, consenting to being called back into session. So the legislative leaders are powerless to call the legislature back into session. I believe what's going to happen uh, is that after the election, I believe the governor will call the legislature back into session. This legislature ends on the first Wednesday of December. That's when the new legislature, which is voted in in November, um, takes over. Uh, so bills that are before this legislature disappear on, on the first Wednesday of December. Um, any legislative activity that has to be done by the current legislature, has to be done before, before December. Now, uh, I believe that the reason the governor has not called the legislature back into session in part may be to uh, uh, allow uh, the House Speaker to have campaign time as opposed to being tied up in the legislature. Um, and I think it also may be to wait until the results of the election show what the voters, the tenor of the voters is to uh, might influence the way the legislature behaves in that 
lame duck period. So I'm guessing that the governor will call the legislature back into session after the election, um, and uh, uh, but not before. And the legislative leaders themselves are not able to call the legislature back into session without the consent of a majority of every party. Now, at the moment, there are only two parties represented in the legislature, but it's a majority of both parties have to agree. Do you think a factor in the governor not wanting to call the legislature back in session is COVID and all the chaos of politicizing that? It seemed early on that some of the Republicans were wanting to at least based on what they were putting out there publicly, wanting to get back in session so they could question some of the government governor's executive actions around COVID. Well, that's true. So one of the, um, th there seemed to be some, there seemed to have been some attempt at negotiation uh, to determine what the rules would be that they would follow if they came back into session, what topics they would or would not take up, uh, for example. Um, on the other hand, if the legislature were in session, they are not beholden to any rules that are set out beforehand. It would just simply be a matter of personal trust as to whether they did or did not follow those prior agreed upon conditions for coming into session. So certainly by not coming into session, one avoids all of the, all of that political mishmash. And, you know, we're seeing around the country, some states where there are really big conflicts between legislatures and governors over COVID rules. And um, so, you know, that that's not coming up. I mean, I, I also, wonder when it comes to why Republicans don't want to come into session if um, if there's any tie to trying to support the Collins campaign and letting them run those kinds of ads. I have no idea, but it just certainly is, leads to that kind of question. I mean, because on their side, you would think they would want to have some say into what's going on, or even if they don't have the votes to have the voice. You know, and then their their backers would say, oh, here's these people who are fighting for me and fighting for my point of view. But if they're not willing to go back into session, I, I think that in some ways, even though they have more time to uh, be out on the campaign trail, I you can also be making sort of political pitches by governing or at least saying what you would want to do while governing. So uh, that to me is a is a little uh, odd that they're not the, the you know the Republicans haven't been willing to come back at all because I I would think in some ways it would be helpful to to be out there clearly stating what what it is that they they want to do at this point but maybe they don't have a clear view within their caucus or they're divided or I, I really don't know I mean I mean the polling on political figures in Maine we talk about state figures, Janet Mills has been pretty popular, um, not as not as strong as she was maybe, you know, three months ago, but she definitely has pretty strong approvals in the high 50s or so. Um, and I don't know, maybe they don't want to challenge that. But it just seems like a little bit of a lost opportunity in terms of being able to say this is really what we stand for. There is also... Okay, Ralph Chapman, go ahead. 
there is also the, the, the physical problem of how to bring the legislature together. Would they do it virtually or would they try to space themselves out at the, the, the state house is a, a large building, but there are 186 legislators. So it's not a simple matter to uh, accommodate their normal uh, procedures uh, in a, in a pandemic situation where, where uh, they're, our executive orders restricting indoor groups of people gathering. I think at one point they were talking about using the Augusta Civic Center, but I don't know how that would work with their voting system if they'd have to like bring that over and somehow wire that in there. But so I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. Just want to remind people you're listening to the elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents. I'm Amy Brown. Again, I'm here with you just heard from former state representative Ralph Chapman and prior to that Professor Amy Freed. Will Hayward and Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Um, I want to switch to talking about voter intimidation and suppression. And just to kind of set the stage, I have a couple of audio clips here that I'm going to bring up and play on my phone uh, so we can give them a listen. These uh, clips were recorded at a press conference by a nonpartisan group called the Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights Under Law back on October 4th after Trump had uh, told the Proud Boys to stand by and uh, raising concerns about that as well as other things, raising concerns about voter intimidation at the polls, people showing up to quote unquote observe the elections. And this first clip I'm going to pay, play is Frank Figliusi. He's a former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI. Um, here, here's the lens through which I look at the president's comments and what we're seeing on uh, right-wing extremists and violent fringe groups in response to the president and specifically with regard to polling places and the election. What I feel quite comfortable saying is that right-wing extremist groups, including QAnon, Proud Boys, Boogaloo Boys, and violent militia groups are all using the language of violent conflict in both their public and in their private communications online. These communications are being monitored not only by law enforcement agencies, but also those in the private sector intelligence business. What we're seeing include calls for a civil war, for race-based conflict, for increased acquisition of weapons, which, by the way, are getting more and more difficult to purchase, including a purchase of ammunition in some cities being virtually um, uh, absent on store shelves. But more interestingly, um, for our discussion today, they're also calling for a physical response and presence to polling places. And that is particularly true for the Proud Boys and for Boogaloo Boys. Um, turning out at the polls and poll places is being encouraged. It's being planned. Um, there are specific posts from Proud Boys, for example, that encourage it um, and even are planning for rallies and training sessions on how to turn out. So the specter of people who are violent in nature and have violent agendas and often come armed with long guns um, is becoming a very real possibility. The communications we're seeing um, were great, became greatly enhanced following President uh, Trump's debate response 
the other night where he was asked to denounce uh, white supremacy and the Proud Boys and said, said they should stand back and stand by. The response there, regardless of the president's intentions, was that the Proud Boys viewed this as viewed uh, widely based on their communications as a call to action and a call to arms. And even more recently, as the president, I believe last night on a Fox News um, uh, interview with Sean Hannity, he did make a, a unusually strong for him comment um, denouncing Proud Boys. Um, the response to that that we saw online was that they perceived that as something he, quote, had to do, um, that kind of the, the right has left us, the left has left us. We are on our own. We must take action. So it um, it was viewed as kind of a pro forma thing that the president had to do and seemed not only to not discourage them, but rather to energize them even further that they're left on their own to take to take action. Um, all of this is consistent with what we've already heard the FBI director, Chris Ray, tell, tell, tell the public and Congress in his briefings on the Hill, and that is that the, uh, <clears throat> the, the, the current threat, the most highest priority threat right now, sadly, is, is domestic, and it is specifically from a race-based, hate-based, uh, right-wing violent extremists. That's where um, the majority of violence and organized violence I think that's important that the majority of organized violence is coming from. And then I would add, since I spent 25 years in national security and counterintelligence work at the FBI, that there is yet another uh, disturbing layer to this, which is that we are also seeing um, this, this violent message, this, this message regarding turning out at the polls, this message about being completely uncertain about election outcomes and wanting to amplify that. We're seeing that regurgitated and pushed by foreign powers online so that it's becoming increasingly hard. And I've worked on this as recently as this week on trying to discern the difference between a foreign, uh, a foreign spoofed site that looks like the Proud Boys pushing for turnout here or there or advocating violence and an actual Proud Boys site. And so uh, sadly our adversaries externally are jumping on the bandwagon trying to instigate this even further. Those are those are my uh, my messages today. The um, end result here, um, engaging in some predictive analysis, could be that votes are suppressed through uh, intimidation at the polls, um, and if the voters start seeing images on their television of people with long guns, militia groups shouting at lines of voters, and if they see an inadequate law enforcement response to that, this could result in in suppressed vote from a physical uh, in-person voting perspective. I will tell you that my contacts in law enforcement at both the city, state, and federal level, encouragingly, are very much on this. They are preparing very quietly um, to um, to respond to intimidation and violence as we face not only the election, but in particular, my contacts tell me their greatest concerns lie between election day and inauguration day. So that's my uh, my brief from from my corner of the world. 
That was uh, Frank Figliusi, former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI, speaking at a press conference on October 4th. Also speaking at that Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights Under Law press conference was Dr. Carol Anderson, professor of African-American studies at Emory University. And here is what she had to say. It's a little historical context. I'm a historian, so I'm going to provide some of this back history um, so that we can contextualize the president's comments on the debate stage. Um, at the root of voter intimidation in the United States is the quest to maintain disproportionate power, white supremacy, and a narrowed definition of who could possibly be a citizen. Well, Congress, after the Civil War, had created the legal basis through amendments and laws to end slavery, to provide birthright citizenship, and to sanction the right to vote. With this, blacks were no longer property, or at best denizens, that halfway limbo land of serious vulnerability. And in response to Congress's second founding, as Eric Foner calls it, recalcitrant whites, supported by the acquiescence of the White House, particularly President Andrew Johnson, engaged in what historian Annette Gordon-Reed described as a slow motion genocide to terrorize the black community and put African-Americans, as it was seen, back in their place. The violence was especially acute around elections. The 1873 massacre at Colfax, Louisiana, where up to 100 African-Americans were slaughtered and which was subsequently sanctioned and ignored by the U.S. Supreme Court, gave license to that terror. Well, the rise of Jim Crow brought another wave. In 1920, for example, in Ocoee, Florida, a black man named Mose Norman attempted to vote in that presidential election. And this was the election after the First World War, the war to make the world safe for democracy. Well, the night before that election, the Klan marched down the, the main street, warning African-Americans to stay away from the polls. Black folks didn't listen. And one by one, they showed up at the precinct to vote. And one by one, they were harassed, harangued, bullied, and turned away. Well, Mose Norman refused. And his defiance eventually led him to seek legal counsel to rally those who were blocked from voting so that they could sue for the violation of their basic voting rights. Well, that night, whites went looking for him. And by the time they were done, at least 50 African-Americans were lynched and the remainder of more than 400 fled the town. And Ocoee, Florida, in this ethnic cleansing, did not have another African-American resident for more than 50 years. Unfortunately, American history is filled with these brutal stories of voter intimidation. 
We must ensure that America's present is not. That was Dr. Carol Anderson, professor of African-American studies at Emory University, speaking on October 4th at a press conference. So I want to just pause there before we start talking about what the attorney general is doing here in Maine to try to make sure people know that there, there won't be voter intimidation here in Maine. They'll be addressing that. But any reactions to thoughts about those audio clips? It's chilling isn't it, to reflect back on that and to realize um, how many parallels uh, to that are being called to action today. Um, You know, I think the message to our voters here in Maine, though, still has to be recognizing the reality of this and understanding this this backdrop. You, You know, we have to call up our civic courage here in this moment and show up and be present. And the more of us that are present, the less likely it is that these things are gonna swing completely out of control. Um, You know, our elections are run by our friends and neighbors. When you go to your polling place, it's gonna most likely be someone you know who's the warden. The warden in the polling place is very powerful in terms of ejecting people who are causing trouble or intimidating and calling in law enforcement if that's needed, which, you know, we're going to summarize in in a minute again when we hear from the attorney general. But, um, and and I mean, this tactic, at least in Maine, is going to be so surprising because when election day comes, I mean, all of the advanced voting that we've seen has tilted heavily towards Democrats, which means that it's most likely to be mostly Republicans that are showing up on election day. So it's hard to figure out how this strategy is actually gonna be helpful to Trump if it deploys on election day. But um, again, civic courage, show up, be present, bear witness. The more of us that are there, the less likely it is that this is gonna uh, spin out of control. And of course people can vote early if they want to. Um, And I mean, everyone in my household has had their ballots accepted. I went on the, we had the mail to us, brought them to Dropbox. And, uh, you know, so it's, uh, they've, they've been accepted. You could check with the Secretary of State's website, you can go into your town hall or an early voting site if there's one open, and vote there. Uh, I think we're going to have a, you know, and we already have over a third of the number of votes in as there were in 2016. So we may have, you know, higher turnout still than that, um, of, you know, but I'm just saying as a proportion of 2016, we have, we, we, we have a lot of votes in already. Um, I, I mean, I think some of this we will see around the country and there is indeed a, a you know, terrible history in some places of violence at the polls and other kinds of voter intimidation. I I am not sure how much there will be ultimately. Um, and I don't think people should be scared off because of it. But yeah, go vote and vote early if you can, because then it's, it's also done. <laughs> I would refer uh, listeners to the writings of uh, George Lakey, L.A., K-E-Y, especially in things published by uh, Waging Nonviolence. He's he's had a lot of experience in in de-escalating 
violent situations and he addressed this specific question about what do we do as citizens if there is, in essence, some kind of Trump coup. And um, I, 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 one of the takeaways that, that, that I see from his writings is that uh, nonviolence and, and uh, behaving in a civil manner and taking civic responsibility is, is a long-term strategy. And it's a long-term strategy that one can start at any time and continue uh, with. Um, but he has some specific suggestions for what to do if, if you're in, a, in an area where there's uh, potential violence. Um, and I encourage people to take a look at that. Right. That was uh, former State Representative Ralph Chapman. Prior to that, you heard from Professor Amy Freed and prior to her, Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. And uh, Anne, did you want to say something else before we uh, jump to, I think Will Hayward from League of Women Voters is going to summarize this uh, election advisory that was issued by Maine's Office of the Attorney General last week? Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and and do that then. Um, but first, I just wanted to reflect a little bit on those um, clips you played, particularly that second one. I think it is really important to remember that history and also to contextualize this, you know, beyond just the polling place. But I also think of, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests earlier this summer. And I think in particular when the um, speaker referenced that you know, another black person had not lived in that town for 50 years after. I think of some of the, you know, some of the protests this summer. I think of one in particular in Vidor, Texas, which is infamous for, you know, being a sundown town um, in the late 1800s, early Explain 1900s. What that means. So a sundown town is a town where black people, either by law or by, you know, effective law, were not permitted to be there. Um, after sundown, there were, you know, the populace was all white. There were places that, you know, if you were black, you knew you should not stop there. And so this town of Vidor, I think of particularly because the first, you know, it did not have a black, black, a black population at all until the 1990s. And even then, it was just one of the biggest fights. And And then I think of the Black Lives Matter protests, and there was a large one there, you know, 200 people, and it was just... It's it's a interesting moment that there's things that give me hope, and then I also you know you hear some of the things discussed in that clip, the tactics used in the past, the tactics being discussed now, and it's it's um, it's concerning. But um, as I'll discuss in a second, um, I think that there is some reassuring messaging being given from the public, from law enforcement. Um, I'm happy to discuss that if you'd like. Go ahead. Well, yeah, uh, and. If you want to do that and also just talk about what the Attorney General is saying mm -hmm. here in Maine, which is uh, as we were speaking prior to uh, starting to tape today's program, a lot of this is just an iteration of what laws are already in place in Maine. But it seemed like this year it seemed important that it be sent around so everyone was aware of them. Sure. Um, so the Attorney General issued um, some updated an updated election advisory um, about um, you know all these issues we've been hearing about with um, concerns of people you know voter intimidation, what voters' rights are, um, what the law actually says. And so there was an updated advisory issued on Friday, and in short, some of the points that it hit on was that it. Um, 
reaffirmed that there's both federal and state law to prohibit private citizens from intimidating voters at the polls. Um, the president cannot send military or federal law enforcement to monitor the polls. Um, the president cannot order state or local law enforcement to monitor the polls. And the complaints about interference with the right to vote or register to vote um, that occur at the polling place should be elected, should be directed to the um, election warden who has authority over, you know, authority over what's happening in the polling place and the authority to eject people um, infringing on those rights. And then also to direct any, um, you know, concerns about things happening outside of the polling place um, as well to the attorney general's office, um, to local law enforcement, to secretary of state. And I know that all of these parties are, you know, monitoring these issues closely. Is the election warden someone that if you just went to your polling place and said, who's the warden, anybody that you talked to there, you know, any of the volunteers could just point you in the right direction. They're there present. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, whenever I'm, you know, trying to get information about what's happening at a polling place. My question is always, where's the warden? And the volunteer at the front always knows who to point me to. All right, so I have sort of a lightning round of questions as we wrap up here in the last 10 minutes. You reminded me this wasn't on the lightning round, but I do recall reading from the Secretary of State's office in recent weeks that people will not be required to wear face coverings when they're voting, that they felt that it's a it's a right to vote and they can't insist so they're not going to try to do that battle anyone who's canvassing or you know doing other kinds of work around the polls will have to wear them uh what is the deadline for requesting a mail-in ballot has that already passed you can request a mail-in ballot until the thursday before the election but um that's going to be too late so don't wait that long back, right, right. Um, if you've already got your ballot and you're planning to mail it in, you should mail it today or tomorrow to be absolutely sure. If you can't mail it that soon or if it doesn't come until after that, your best bet is to drop it off in person at your town hall. You can either go in and hand it across the desk or many, many, many main towns, if not almost all, have an external drop box now that you can, that you can put it in. Um, if you're needing to request, still request a ballot, um, don't mail in your application anymore. I mean, it's just practically speaking too late. You can still get one by calling and they will mail it to you. In some towns, they've worked it out with their town that the mail doesn't go down to central sorting in Scarborough, but just gets um, sent out the next day. So in some towns, if you phone in a request, you're going to get your ballot the next day. Um, and then you know, don't cast it like there's not time for the thing to be mailed to you and then you to mail it, mail it back any anymore. Um, but you can still request one by phone until that Thursday before the election. And then on Friday before the, the election on the 30th, you can still get an absentee ballot without an excuse if you go down there in person and pick it up. And as far as turning them back in, does every town have a Dropbox now? And if not, if you go to one that doesn't have a Dropbox, can you just bring it into any town office and hand it in? No, you have to take it to That's your it. town and you have to put it in your town's Dropbox. You can't put it in any other town's Dropbox and you can't hand it in to any other town clerk. So you have to turn it in to your town um, by 8 p.m. on election day. And um, I, I believe there was Secretary of State's guidance that was advising 
all towns to be keep some open hours on that Friday. Um, so they may not all be open from eight to five. They may not all be open late until seven, but um, I believe every town will be open for some period of time on that Friday. Can people vote in person at any town office, at, at their own town office, at all of the town offices across the state right now? Can you just go in and get a ballot and just fill it out right there? As long as they're open. Some of the towns are um, doing that by appointment. So it's best to call first, depending on you know what their policy is and what social distancing they're able to provide. But um, you can certainly get an appointment and go. And yes, all the towns are doing in-person absentee voting during whatever open hours they're keeping. When I handed my ballot in, they checked for the signature on the envelope. I know that's one of the big mistakes that people are making is you're just not used to signing the back flap of an envelope when you when you mail something in or hand something in. What other things are uh, potential mistakes that could kick out a ballot? That's the Big one. That's like the number one reason why absentee ballots get rejected is people forget to sign the back of the envelope. Um, like 90% of the rejections in the last election were failure to sign the envelope. If you, if you do forget, your town is supposed to try to contact you and give you a chance to fix it. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you get that call, you can go down and sign the envelope a after the fact. Very, very few, very, very few insignificant number. I mean, there were some signature mismatches, but very, very few. And even if that happens, they're supposed to call you and give you a chance to go back down and fix it. Um, you know, some of them have to do with an absentee ballot coming in from somebody or a request coming in from somebody who wasn't a registered voter or... Um, you know, there can be some other little technical things that happen, but the the town clerk is supposed to call you if your ballot is getting rejected and give you a chance to fix it before election day. And does it matter if people use pencil or pen? And if they use pen, does it matter what color it is? My husband spoiled his ballot by using um, a rollerball pen with a wet, wet ink um, because it bled through, right? So... Um, the, the best advice I can give is to use a black or blue ballpoint pen. Don't use a wet ink pen. Use a ballpoint pen. Um, pencil is okay if you're absolutely positive you've got a number two soft lead pencil, but if you've got a hard lead pencil, it might not be dark enough. So we don't actually advise using pencil. And don't erase because if you erase, that also causes a problem. Another reason why we don't recommend pencil. But if you use a black or a blue ballpoint pen, you're going to be good. And how did he find out? Did they contact him and let him know that his, I mean, is that uh, one no, of the he, things? No, he showed it to me. And I said, oh, I think that's <laughs> going to give you a problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now I'm like, I always use these like gel link pens and I'm worried. Uh, mine's already been submitted. So hopefully they'll let me know <laughs> if it's a problem. We have about uh, 30 seconds each for you to have one final word. This is the last edition of the elections 2020 main currents before the election. I have a feeling we'll probably be meeting at least one more time to uh, talk about how things went. Hopefully you all can join me again. But in the meantime, as people go out to vote in 30 seconds, how about a word from each of you, your last thoughts about this election? Sure. I would say go and vote, vote. But remember, it's a ranked choice vote for some of the races on the ballot. And this is the, your opportunity to be able to vote for 
the candidate you want is your first choice, and uh, you can use your second or third choices as, uh, for expressing your opinion about uh, who you'd prefer if your first choice candidate does not win. And um, there is no uh, risk to um, the person you like least uh, winning if you choose to rank your choices as opposed to not ranking your choices. So right. I, I, I'm encouraging people to uh, rank their choices. Great. Who's next? 30 seconds. Amy Freed, uh, Professor yeah, Amy Freed. I think this may be the election that Maine Republicans make peace with ranked choice voting. They're starting to tell um, other, the Republican leadership is starting to tell Republicans in Maine how to use ranked choice, explaining it to them a little bit more so that they're more comfortable with it. Uh, but of course, there is a question as to whether they might end up deciding to challenge a result after the election. But at this point, at least before the election, they are uh, taking some time to do that kind of voter education, which I think is a, a positive step. Well, or Anne, who wants to go next quickly? Uh, my, my quick thing would just be that from so far, everything we're seeing in Maine, things are going really, really well here. And I'm just really, really encouraged. You know, I think we mentioned 224,000 people have voted, roughly a third of 2016 numbers across the country. It's over 28 million. Um, and, you know, I think things are just going very, very smoothly. And the quicker you can get your vote in, the better. Great. And Ann Luther, that was Will Hayward, a League of Women Voters. Ann Luther? Just very quickly, uh, you know, it's about showing up. The elections are going to be won by people who show up, and it's just so important to having a function, functioning democracy, democracy for our people to show up and participate and um, bear witness to the process. So... Mm -hmm. Thank you all so very much. You've been listening to Maine Current's Independent Local News, Views, and Culture. It's the third Tuesday of the month, so this has been the Elections 2020 edition, although we've recorded this on Monday the 19th via Zoom. I'm Amy Brown. My guests today were Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, former State Representative Ralph Chapman, Ann Luther, Board Member for the League of Women Voters of Maine and the host of Democracy Forum here on WERU, and Will Hayward, Advocacy Program Coordinator for the League of Women Voters. The Democracy Forum has been doing some excellent in-depth coverage around all things election. They air on the third Friday of every month, but if you've missed some of their previous programs, be sure to go to the archives at weru.org, and that's the third Friday of every month at four o'clock. It's when our local public affairs air. So be sure to check the archives of the Democracy Forum at weru.org, and keep it tuned here to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, streaming online at weru.org and on the WERU app, and we'll be back next month. We'll see you then. <laughs>